Welcome to Future Out Loud from the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University. I'm Heather Ross. Together with Andrew Maynard, we bring you conversations with experts on and off campus where we think out loud about our collective future. In today's episode, Andrew Maynard was back, and Andrew Maynard was our special guest, our expert. We were talking about autonomous vehicles, and as you'll soon hear, we recorded this episode about two and a half, three weeks after the first death came from a fully autonomous vehicle. There was a pedestrian who was struck and killed by a car being driven autonomously uh, through the the Uber autonomous vehicle program in Tempe. And Andrew, fortunately, is one of the experts in this area. So I was really glad to be able to interview him once again about autonomous vehicles. This is not the first time that we've talked about autonomous vehicle technology and futures on the Future Out Loud podcast. And this was the first time that it really had directly impacted human life. And so we spent some time thinking Thinking through that and trying to define the problem and trying to think about ways forward that, you know, what is the smartest set of ways that we ought to be thinking about this problem so that we can move forward in a uh, to reach a future that we can all agree on. Before we get there, as always, thank you so much for being with us on the Future Out Loud podcast. We always want to hear what you think, and you can let us know in places like Twitter or uh, Facebook, where you can find us at the ha- or at the uh, handle Future Out Loud. You can also uh, find our website at futureoutloud.org, where you can hear this episode and you can hear all of the previous episodes. You can also find our episodes in places like iTunes or Stitcher or SoundCloud or Google Play or, frankly, wherever you get your fine podcasts. So, without further ado. On with Andrew Maynard and Autonomous Vehicles. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Heather. It's just us today. It is. And I'm glad to have you back because the last couple... It's been a while. Yeah, it's been a long time. And it's been a long time since we just had a conversation where you are the expert. I I guess. I mean, you are always the expert. Well, only in my own head. Well, your own head is a big place to be, so... (laughs) That that does not sound good. Okay, um, but we're going to talk about autonomous vehicles, yes. and you really actually are an expert in this space. And I this know a is, little bit, yes. This is not the first time that we've talked about autonomous vehicles with you as the expert, but this is the first time that we've talked about autonomous vehicles after fatalities. Right, yes. And after a pedestrian fatality. Of course. This was, of course, national news. Yes. Tempe hit the headlines, unfortunately, uh, because a uh, an auto- a, a how should we say this? So, so it was a, an Uber SUV um, in self-driving modes. Mm-hmm. Ten o'clock at night, um, hit a pedestrian, Elaine Herzberg, as she was crossing the road um, under a, a not a particularly well lit area and away mm-hmm. from crossroads mm-hmm. um, or crossing points, crosswalks, uh, crosswalks. Yes, yes. Um, but she was hit and she was killed by mm-hmm. this device that was driving itself. Yes, and there was a human 
at the wheel. There was. So one of these so-called safety drivers that Uber uses, where they put a human behind the wheel, so if there's any problem with the car, they can take over. Right. Um, one of the problems we know in this case was that that safety driver wasn't paying attention. They were clearly distracted from what was happening on the road. Yes, yes. And so Ed, this was our first pedestrian fatality. Mm-hmm. And what happened... Imme- what happened immediately? What happened in the you know next couple of days, and what has happened since? Because we're what two weeks out from we're this? We're actually maybe weeks? closer to, to three weeks. Okay. Yeah. So so what happened fairly immediately was that this was news that was um, reported on fairly widely. It was seen as a, a fairly significant event. Mm-hmm. Um, Uber immediately took their self driving vehicles off the road. Mm-hmm. Um, there were, began to be speculation on what the cause was. Was it the pedestrian's fault? Was it the car's fault? Was it the algorithms associated with the car? Was it the backup driver, the safety driver? Mm -hmm. So we had that speculation beginning, and then investigations began into the the nature of the cause of the crash. Okay. Uh, so that's that. That was the immediate yes. um, um, aftermath. That then began a, a short period of speculation about. Um, how we should begin thinking about the safety of these these self-driving vehicles. At the same time in Arizona, a couple of really interesting things happened. Mm -hmm. So just before this, Governor Doug Ducey came out with tighter regulations through an executive order requiring these companies that are testing their cars, their self-driving vehicles on our roads to comply more strongly to effectively what the rules of the road are. So that actually preceded this crash. Say, wait, say more about that. So, How were they not complying strongly to the rules of the road? So what has happened in Arizona um, was effectively this was declared a regulation-free area, almost. Not quite. Mm. So companies that were testing their cars mm-hmm. had to comply with, with certain requirements of road safety. Mm-hmm. But by and large, companies like Uber and Waymo were invited in by um, being told that, hey, there are no regulations here. Let's try this technology out and, and see how it works without having to jump through regulatory hoops. Okay. Um, that's been going on for a while now, um, a year or so here. Mm-hmm. And the sense was coming from the governor's office that we're getting enough information now and the technology is progressing at a sufficient of, of a pace that we need to think a little bit more carefully about safety. Mm-hmm. So now the executive order started talking about making sure that these cars actually did comply with what were safe driving requirements Mm -hmm. for humans uh, with evidence of that but also developing approaches to what happens if there is an incident a crash how do emergency responders actually deal with these situations so beginning to come up with a framework for ensuring that we can actually use this technology safely and and smartly okay Um, so that happened just before the crash then the crash happened um, Uber decided to suspend activities Doug Ducey came out um, governor of Arizona and said, actually, we're not going to allow Uber for the foreseeable future to operate here. So that was an immediate backlash against Uber. A lot of speculations about what went wrong, why it went wrong. So those early speculations were that there was seemed to be something wrong with the car itself mm-hmm. or the technology it was using. Definitely something wrong with putting a human in as a backup, which clearly didn't work. Right. And the reality here is that this pedestrian was hit full force. There was no braking, mm. no evasive action from the car's perspective Nothing. whatsoever. And if you look at the circumstance, 
it's very hard to understand why there wasn't any evasive action at all. Okay. Even if you had an alert human driver there, the chances are that they would have begun to take evasive action to avoid that pedestrian. I so see. a lot of questions about what went wrong. Okay. So, but then you get to the slightly longer term mm -hmm. um, implications of this. So we're now, what, two or three weeks out. Yeah. And this seems to be a story that's dying down. People really aren't talking about it much mm -hmm. anymore. Other companies are going full steam ahead. So what was really telling was in the, the few days afterwards, Waymo, the other big company, the Google-based company that are testing their vehicles on the roads here, announced that they were going to be launching their full autonomous passenger service yes. in Tempe and Phoenix. So this means cars with no driver whatsoever uh -huh. on the roads. Yes. So this is a really weird juxtaposition that just a few days after the first person has been killed by a mm -hmm. self-driving car, we're now moving towards cars being on the road with no driver whatsoever. So. When we think about the technology, the conversation that I saw just a snippet of, and as you said, this is seems to be a conversation that's dying down mm -hmm. writ large. Yes. But the conversation that I saw emerge only for a day, maybe, was the difference in the technology on the Uber vehicles right. versus the Waymo vehicles, which is to say that the Uber vehicles have one unit mm -hmm. and is it a lidar unit that so, they use so on the top they they use lidar and i so the technology is uh, at least subtly different between the the companies okay. um, it's hard to tell substantively how different they are they both use lidar and light cameras so mm -hmm. lidar light radar mm -hmm. doesn't need um, external light because it provides its own light source yes. uh, the cameras obviously depend on how light the the surroundings yes. are so both vehicles, to my understanding, use both types of technology, but they integrate them and use them in different ways mm -hmm. to provide that data which the car then uses to make decisions. Right. And the, the most striking thing that I saw was that Uber uses one unit that's mm -hmm. situated on the top, on top of the vehicle, right, yes. whereas the Waymo vehicles utilize seven they, individual units around surrounded. the perimeter. That's right. And yes. as you see these cars, you see the little LiDAR um, yes. units on each corner of the car. So yes. they are surrounded by this whole three 360 degree field right. of view. They look super awkward, but <laughs> I recalled when I saw this in the news, albeit briefly, you talking on this podcast several months ago mm. after you had ridden in a Waymo right. car about the the huge volume of data right. that was fed in from a 360 degree um, perspective that far exceeds the capacity of a human. That's that's right. And so, I was struck. I remembered yes. that immediately. So so, and I was definitely struck by this. And this is where, at least in part of my brain, I'm incredibly excited about this technology mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. if we get it right with these sensors, the the vehicle or the vehicle's brain can see and respond to far more than any human driver can. Yes. Yes. But there are, there are potential holes in that approach. So it's one thing for the car to be able to see everything around it. Mm -hmm. It's another thing to work out whether it can distinguish between a human and, say, a plastic bag sure, floating around across the, um, the road, or even if it does distinguish, how it decides to act on that. Mm -hmm. So we're still in this sort of slightly gray zone between having an enormous amount of really powerful data and working out how we train our computers to deal with that in a safe way. Yes. Now, 
have you ridden, have you had the opportunity to ride in an Uber vehicle No, well? I haven't. No, just the Waymo. Okay, just the Waymo. So yes. we don't have a sort of head-to-head comparison. We, we not, not in terms of that experience. What we do know is we have metrics on how frequently that safety driver has to intervene. Okay. So we know, for instance, with the Ubers, every 10, 12 miles or so, that safety driver was having to take over because they felt the car wasn't behaving safely. Yes. In terms of Waymo, that's thousands to tens of thousands of miles. That's so the there is a driver. complete okay. difference in terms of that intervention. Okay. However, that relies on the... Uh what's the best word, the, the cognizance mm-hmm. um, of the human uh, of safety course. driver. And of course, anytime we introduce a human into the equation, there you know, introduces a flaw. Yes. Yeah, yes. yeah. Yes. Or yes. it's just, it's, Im- it's imperfect. That, right? that's, that's, that's right. That's the nature of humanity. So, so uh, though what makes things really interesting is, of course humans are flawed, of course they mm-hmm. miss things, but also our brains are exquisite in picking things up that computers still really struggle with. Yeah. So you've got that tension between the, the, the backup drivers or safety drivers mm-hmm. obviously missing some things, but being more sensitive to other things than the car itself. Yes. And it's really hard to pass that out. Yeah. The, the other part of this is it's, it's great having data on mm-hmm. safety. What that doesn't tell you is what the road conditions are like. So, for instance, you could choose a straight, completely empty stretch of road and test your cars in beautiful sunny weather on that and have no problems whatsoever. That doesn't tell you anything about what it's like to drive along a windy road at night when there's rain, snow, sleet, whatever. Sure, and tree branches That's right. and yes. things like this. Yes. yes. Well, it to me, one of the things that I spend some time thinking about is uh, I, have, I have colleagues who are borderlands scholars, and we have talked about the various kinds of borders and boundaries and one of the things that I'm very interested in is what is the borderland between quantitative investigation and qualitative investigation and to me this experience now between what can what are computers very good at processing Mm -hmm. and what are humans very good at processing and where do uh, where do those overlap and where are the points where one of those mechanisms of processing had superiority of course you know yes um so that seems to me like a real uh borderland place and maybe that's where we should be focusing Actually, our energy it, so that's a really interesting way of looking at it and i i think you're exactly right so there is that fuzzy zone there mm-hmm. um where we know that things can be done well and safely but we don't understand how so mm-hmm. we know for instance mm-hmm. with humans and i so i i'm sure i'm on record somewhere at in fact, on this podcast, talking about these killing machines on our roads and how dangerous they are. But the reality is that humans are far safer than you would ever imagine they could be driving. Our brains are incredible at taking Mm -hmm. in a complex set of information and processing it in a way that we still don't understand to make smart decisions. So that that gets to the bit where there are things happening that we don't understand. Mm -hmm. And the danger, of course, I know this is just re-articulating what you were saying, is we can have computers that we do understand, but aren't as good as the systems that we don't understand. And the danger is if we focus too much on the quantitative, we'll end up with understandable but unsafe systems rather Mm -hmm. than non-understandable but safe Safe systems. systems, So how do you bridge those two worlds? Now, and here's a conundrum. So Mm -hmm. if you take that idea, 
wouldn't it be great if we could build computer brains that work like humans? We don't fully understand how they work, but they have that human intuition to be able to do things. Would it be great though? Well, so, well, so, so this is the conundrum. Um, because then you have a system where the, the evidence might suggest that it's a safe system, but because you don't know how it's working, right. you don't know how safe it will be in every circumstance mm -hmm. and where there is a problem, where there is a crash or a death, how do you assign blame how do, or responsibility? How do you work out what actually happened there? Mm -hmm. So this gets us into a really weird area, but there's another aspect of that as well, and that's the training aspect. Mm -hmm. So one of the ways that we as humans get good at things is by learning, by mm -hmm. having close encounters, by yes. failing and learning from our mistakes. That's right. But you can't really put a whole group of self-driving cars on the road and say, well, every time you kill somebody, you'll learn something from that. It's ethically, it's not a viable position to take. Well, right. And so that's one of the struggles that I run into when I work with my incredible colleagues in engineering and in particularly the computing versions of technology and right. instantiations of technology and this notion of doing um, you know quote tech which uh, I would suggest Silicon Valley has tried to claim this word tech as meaning everything that happens on the internet is tech when we in fact know that tech is an abbreviation for technology which is much right. much broader right. than just selling stuff on the internet yep. but it seems like there is, of course, value in this notion of fail fast and learn, mm -hmm. but as a healthcare provider, I know that failing fast is not always acceptable Absolutely. and is in fact incredibly dangerous in some places. Yes. So applying this notion of the most noble thing is to fail fast and to learn that's not okay. Doesn't work when you start putting humans or living systems. When human life yes. depends yes. on your cognizance, right? That's exactly it. Then it's yes. not okay to just say, fail fast, and, learn from Silicon Valley. So this is a real, real problem where you've got tech companies that maybe have dealing with problems and systems that don't directly involve humans. Yeah. And they're transporting that ideology into a system that does directly involve humans. That's right. If they haven't had that training. So I used to talk to my students about a public health training and a public health mm -hmm. ethics training. Mm -hmm. If you haven't had that training, if you don't have that understanding, and yet you're messing with people's lives, there's a disconnect there. Huge disconnect. Yes. That's a real problem. Yes. Okay. So... One of our colleagues, Dave Gustin, he happens to be our boss, um, he's done work and some of his earlier work was in boundary organizations and his contemporary work and the work that we all do here in the School for the Future of Innovation and Society is around anticipatory governance for emerging technologies right. in one way or another. So as we think about this borderland that we've sort of talked about, yep. if not defined, and the notion of anticipatory governance and the, the role that boundary organizations can or should play mm -hmm. in anticipatory governance in these emerging borderlands, uh, how can or should we be thinking about the future of 
regulation, the future governance yep. of autonomous vehicles? Great question. Um, and the simple answer is that it's tough, but we've got to grapple we with have this to. question. We absolutely have to. Because this is human life. That's exactly it. So um, there are some things that we know from other areas of technology innovation, things that we've actually learned that we can translate mm -hmm. over to this space. Um, one is the effectively the right to operate. So mm -hmm. you're dealing with a situation where there are always going to be risks. There's mm -hmm. always a chance of somebody being harmed or being killed. Mm -hmm. And someone somewhere has got to weigh up at the benefits of the technology versus the risks. Mm -hmm. But that's a social or a policy-based question. You cannot answer that question mm -hmm. through science. Okay. That means you've got to get the consensus and the agreement of people that are potentially impacted by the technology. Mm -hmm. And because we're dealing with vehicles on roads, mm -hmm. Those people include anybody that is likely to be affected by this. Sure. They include commuters, they include other drivers, mm -hmm. they include bystanders, they include homeless communities that That's are potentially right. going to be hit. Mm -hmm. So then the question is, how do you work with these communities to help them understand the nature of the technology yes. and give them a voice for deciding or helping decide what they consider to be appropriate and acceptable versus not mm -hmm. acceptable. You cannot really operate without that sort of input. Without so that, that's inputs, one side yeah. of it, sort of working out what the social rules of the road are for mm -hmm. developing the technology. Mm -hmm. um, so the other side of that is actually working out how you develop a technology like this without overtly harming people. That's right. And that means looking for small signals and early warnings. Mm -hmm. So this is typically what we do in other areas involving humans. Yes. You work out where the indicators are that something bad might be coming down the pike before it actually happens, yes. and you put provisions in place to prevent that. Mm -hmm. And so I think we've got to have a critical conversation about self-driving cars in particular, mm -hmm. of what those early warnings are. Yeah. How do we know when things aren't going in the way that we would like them to go? and how do we take early action before that's become a catastrophic failure? Yes. So one of the things that I teach in my biomedical device engineering courses is that the design team has to include really major inputs, not just a hand wave, right. but real inputs from everybody who is associated with, impacted by... Right all of the users and non-users of this technology that you're designing, which is to say that uh, classically in biomedical engineering we teach, oh, ask the doctors what they want. Mm -hmm. Sure, yes, and, and this is where improv comedy comes uh, into play, right? Yes, and you also must ask the nurses, the technologists, the hospital administrators, the clinic administrators, the patients, imagine that. Right. Uh, you know, the the payers, the everybody. Right. And right. that all has to go into the design of these technologies. And I would suggest that that must be the case with autonomous it, vehicles it as well. It absolutely has to be. So to, to co-opt a, um, a phrase that's been used in other con uh, contexts, it takes a village. It does. It does. I, everybody has got a role mm -hmm. to play in determining how we're actually going to develop and use this technology mm -hmm. safely, effectively, and in ways that people actually want and are going to embrace. To your knowledge, to what degree is that happening? It's not. Okay. Um, so this is, to me, one of the really frustrating things. Mm -hmm. um, if you talk to these companies that are developing self-driving vehicles, mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't know about Uber, but talking to other companies, they're trying to do this responsibly. Yeah. But to them, responsibility 
is doing the same things that industry has done in the past, and that's mm -hmm. forming industry consortia uh -huh. where experts talk to other experts about what they think is safe, what in they well think is beneficial, way. in a well-meaning way, sure. but completely missing the point that because they're working with ordinary people with these technologies, they've got to have a much broader range of voices, yeah. even on the expert front. Um, so we work in this area of responsible innovation, mm -hmm. where we look very practically at what potentially goes wrong within complex technologies within a complex society and how to avoid those bad things. Uh -huh. My sense is that the self-driving vehicle community is not even talking to people with expertise in that area. People yeah. that have seen train crashes in other areas of technology innovation mm -hmm. and have insights into how to stop it happening again or how to steer things in a different direction. Yeah. So those are voices, I think, that are essential to getting this technology right. And they're mm -hmm. not there at the moment. I think that's right. And then... The other piece of it is the anticipatory governance aspect, and that's an area that we work in right. and we must work in. What are the roles and how maybe should we be thinking about the different opportunities for governance at different levels of government yep. or non-governmental governance? How, what are the opportunities for municipal governments, state, federal? Huge opportunities. Yeah. So, so this is where things get really complex, especially mm -hmm. when you're putting a, a framework like anticipatory governance around mm -hmm. this, or you could even take a broader a governance framework. Mm -hmm. um, but questions here involve questions like, what do we want the future to look like? Right. So at, at the moment, most of us actually don't have a say in this. We know that there are companies that are trying to develop and sell us cars that drive themselves. Yes. The conversation we don't have is, in 10, 20, 50 years, what would we like that future to look like? Right. Um, and this is important because if we know what that looks like, for instance, we might be wanting a future where we have integrated public-private transportation systems, mm -hmm. where we're not just talking about self-driving cars, but we're talking about how do you most efficiently get people from A to B within a complex city, for instance. Sure. Um, so if you have that goal in mind, you can begin to talk about um, how you develop not only technologies, but governance systems to nudge things towards that sort of future you mm -hmm. want. So this is part of anticipation. Yes. Anticipating what we want to see as a society, what we don't want to see, mm -hmm. and how to get there. Now that completely changes the dynamic around technology innovation because now we're working together towards a common goal mm -hmm. rather than just allowing the market to decide whose short-term technology succeeds and what doesn't. Right. So, and this is a you know, becomes a provocative area uh, politically, like, are we talking about big government? Does this necessarily point to big I, government? And, and this gets to your second point, and, and no, it doesn't. But it, it does require some societal-level decision-making. Mm -hmm. So you, you mentioned these sort of different levels in the hierarchy of, of decision-making and governance. So you've got mm -hmm. everything from um, federal government, if you're in the U.S., mm -hmm. down to state government, municipal mm -hmm. government. But then you've got the different actors as well. So you've got the industry actors, you've got different uh, roles of organizations such as advocacy groups mm -hmm. or even the insurance companies. Yes. So all of these are players in this landscape around how you make smart decisions. Yes. And all of them have some degree of agency if they allow the chance to both see that and act on it. So mm -hmm. for instance, if you look at the situation with um, local governance within Tempe, for instance, mm -hmm. um, the, the local municipality along with 
um, commercial stakeholders, academic stakeholders, public stakeholders, mm -hmm. actually had the ability to do an awful lot here in terms of deciding what they want their local community to be like and how they're going to either put barriers up to prevent things that they don't want to see or mm -hmm. open avenues for things that they do want to see. Mm -hmm. So this is not about big government, but this is about communities getting together to work out how they can leverage their abilities to make things happen. Sure. And listening to all of the stakeholders right. yes. to say, what do you want your future to look like? That's right. And then yes. what steps can we take now to make that happen? So, so there is a challenge here that actually became very apparent with the, the Tempe crash. Mm -hmm. And that is, if you look at these local communities, at the moment they have very little understanding of what they can do. Yes. So you look at, at Tempe, they've had these big companies come in, experimenting on their roads. Mm -hmm. um, they haven't fully understood the implications of mm -hmm. this. They haven't understood the technologies. They haven't understood the benefits mm -hmm. and the risks. And so even though in principle they can act, in practice they haven't had the knowledge, the understanding, the insights that will help them do that. Right. So one of the opportunities here is how do you provide key stakeholders and communities mm -hmm. with the information that they need to be able to be part of an informed decision-making process? Hold on. Are you talking about transparent facts? Well, I guess that would be one part of it. Yes, so you've got to have mm -hmm. you've got to have transparency, you've got to have facts and evidence, but you've got to have the framework that makes sense of okay. that as well. All right. So, if we were to sum up, problems include the technology design may not have incorporated all stakeholder inputs, mm -hmm. yep. all relevant stakeholder inputs, uh, and the uh, existing governance structures don't take into account the emerging technology, mm -hmm. and we don't yet have a unifying framework that allows all societal stakeholders to look forward right. and make policy. Yes. Okay, so that seems like it really simplifies. <laughs> <laughs> it simplifies the problem. It doesn't help with the solutions that much. But, but the reality is there are ways of doing things better mm -hmm. and ways of doing things worse. And a lot of this actually isn't rocket science. So, mm -hmm. so I'll just give you an anecdote. And this, this may seem a little strange. Mm -hmm. um, so Elaine Herzberg, who was killed, um, was on and off part of the homeless community that, yes. that lives around Mill Avenue. And this is a community that is quite often marginalized. People actually don't mm -hmm. see them as having strong social value. But these are people. They have as much value as, as the next person. That's um, and yet nobody talks to them. Right. Nobody has really engaged this community um, in conversations around what they want the area around them to be like, how they want to see technologies developed. Yeah. Um, what intrigued me, though, is straight after the crash, a number of reporters from fairly high-level uh, media outlets came to the, the area, talking mm -hmm. to people, trying to find out what was happening. And speaking to one of these, um, this, uh, this reporter said one of the first things she did was actually go and talk to the homeless community down mm -hmm. there. She's the only person I know that actually took the trouble to speak to these people. Yes. And what she came away with was that 
these are smart, informed people. Forget yes. about the fact that they're homeless. It actually is irrelevant here. Yes. Um, they actually had fairly clear insights in terms of what they thought about the technology, where they saw was what they saw was the excitement around the technology, mm-hmm. how they could see it used in ways that would benefit people's lives and what the problems were. Right. And it really struck me that it's not that difficult to talk to people. Mm-hmm. You've just got to get over that barrier of realizing that you don't necessarily have all the answers and mm-hmm. somebody else might do. And of course, it's nice to have big formal processes for doing this, but even before you get there, just that idea of it's good to talk is really mm-hmm. powerful. That's good. So we should just all be talking more. We well, should. It's a starting we point. We should. We should. Uh, yeah, thank you. Yes. I mean, of course, I, that goes two ways. If somebody's talking, you've got to have somebody that's listening and part of that engagement process. Absolutely. But not doing that at all is a really big mistake. Okay. So. We've defined the problem, we think, pretty well. Mm-hmm. If we were going to listen to our own uh, recommendations, we would, of course, talk to and listen to, talk with and listen to uh, many more people to make sure that, that the way that we're defining the problem is actually resonant right. with the entire stakeholder community. And there is a path forward to my mind, that involves engagement. Right. Engagement across the entire stakeholder community. Yep. Including designers, users of the technology, and non-users of the technology. I agree. Okay, so let's just do that. Okay. All right. That sounds like a plan. Super. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you. For more where that came from, check out the School for the Future of Innovation and Society at sfis.asu.edu. Future Out Loud is produced with the support of the School for the Future of Innovation and Society and the Risk Innovation Lab at ASU. Mark Van Hare created our music. Esmeralda Parker is our production assistant. Our website is futureoutloud.org. Subscribe to Future Out Loud on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you get your fine podcasts.